0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics.
1: We're constantly assessing the new situation and making decisions based on the information. So, you around. think it
0: should? Bidding farewell to the Arrive Can app. Reports say the Trudeau government is getting ready to move on, but what does the science say? Coming up, we'll hear from MPs as they discuss the app's merits and drawbacks, and we'll get some thoughts from infectious diseases physician Dr. Isaac Bogosh.
2: And. Why won't they cancel these tax hikes so Canadians can pay
0: their bills? We know-
3: Canadians need support, that's why we have a plan to give them
0: that. Tackling the rising cost of living, the Trudeau Liberals are moving forward with affordability measures with the help of the NDP, but how are those who are struggling economically reacting to the new programs? We'll get some assessment from the front lines. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapeo. Traveling to this country may soon get a lot easier, and that's because multiple reports citing unnamed liberal sources say the Trudeau government will soon be ending a number of travel measures. Now, if these reports are true, it would mean an end to vaccine requirements for international travelers coming to Canada, making the Arrive Can app voluntary, and ending randomized testing at airports. But again, these are just reports not yet confirmed by the PMO, and when asked, uh, well, here's what we heard today from Liberal
1: MPs. First of all, arrive can is a critical tool to uh, process travelers uh, with the requirement of the vaccine mandate. So we're asking, it's a tool that helps process arrivals as they arrive. So you want to keep it mandatory beyond September 30th? there's no decision has been made we are as we've said all no along where but... we're we're constantly assessing the new situation and making decisions based on the situation so you think it, it, it should remain remember. beyond
4: this is the time to reassess those particular measures now
1: and once that is done communications will be will follow
5: this is a conversation inside government we're taking it very seriously
0: Joining us now to discuss the matter are Greg Fergus, Liberal MP for Hull Elmer in Quebec and Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister, Melissa Lanceman, Conservative MP for the riding of Thornhill in Ontario and now Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party, and Taylor Backrack, the NDP MP for skeena bulkley Valley in British Columbia. Hello to the three of you hi welcome back listen uh mr thank you uh mr fergus i gotta begin with you uh will the requirement to use the ArriveCAN can app and for arrivals to be vaccinated coming into this country will those soon be coming to an end well i could tell you that the expiry date uh, for government to reconsider this is
5: happening on september 30th as you know in every previous time every three or four months uh, we set a, an expiry period The Minister of Health, uh, in consultation with the Public Health Agency of Canada, experts, scientists, uh, makes an evaluation. This is what we promised Canadians. We promised them that we would provide, make sure, and give them absolute, as, as best security as we can for their health, and we will take the best advice possible, and then we will make a decision as a result of that. So based on the facts and figures that they're currently evaluating, we'll find out their decision in the next week or so.
0: Okay, that sounds like a long way of saying yes without saying yes. Uh, Ms. Lansman, what do you think?
3: Well, look, we didn't get the science for the justification for the app from the start. We didn't get the justification of the science to keep it. And we certainly don't have any justification for the science to to continue it. It seems like the government has always made this about a political decision. Uh, And it's it's nice to see them backing down from uh, from something that border mayors, uh, uh, tourism associations, chambers of commerce, uh, and just about every stakeholder we spoke to said, drop the app. Glad to see the government's doing. I've got, you know, I've got one more thing, and I hope that those who were fined for not complying with this uh, COVID theater are, are return their uh, their $6,000 fine or their plus $6,000 fine that they received for uh, for this incompetence.
0: Mr. Backrack, what's your reaction to all this? What do you make of what uh, we are seeing in reports and what we're hearing so far from Liberal
1: MPs? Sure. So especially at the land borders, we're hearing a ton of concerns from mayors, from travelers who are in long lineups and from the workers at the borders who are frustrated because essentially they're having to serve as IT help desks for people who are struggling with the technology. This isn't an efficient process. And so I think if these rumors are true, if these leaks are true, and the government makes the app optional, that's going to resolve uh, some of these concerns that we're hearing. But again, the, the, the thing we've seen from this government all along is a lack of transparency. They haven't explained the criteria when it came to the domestic uh, flight mandate. Um, you you know, we pushed them for ages to explain to Canadians what science it was based on. We still haven't gotten an explanation. So when it comes to changing policy based on changing conditions, we absolutely want a government that's responsive. We also want a government that's transparent, and that's where they've been falling down.
0: You know, Ms. Lansman, you talk about the science never backing up this policy, and certainly you're right, we have heard from the travel industry, we've heard from the airline industry, they have been calling for an end to, for example, the mandatory use of the ArriveCAN app. But, you know, the pandemic itself is not yet over. So what do you tell Canadians who would still like to see travellers screened before entering this country?
3: Well, there was there was no reason that the government ever put forward for why we screen travelers. There is nothing that you do in your daily life. There are no restrictions in the province that we are currently in, or frankly, uh, any other province in terms of screening or masking. So to, to continue these restrictions are frankly not in line with everything else we are doing, and most of our allies are doing in the world. So I say to the government, if you if you have a justification for this, show you know show your work, uh, just like you would have in uh, in high school. We've continuously asked for. That we've been continuously denied that, and in fact, just just less than a month ago, or just about a month ago, the Minister of Transport actually said that ArriveCan makes the airports more efficient, and we've seen a summer of travel that has been horrendous. I know the Prime Minister doesn't know that he travels uh, uh, privately and not through airports, but Canadians are still struggling with uh, with long lineups in airports, long lineups at land borders. Uh, it's it's. It's it's taken a toll on our economy uh, and certainly on our reputation.
0: OK, Mr. Backrack, let me try it with you then, because, yes, we have seen long lines and yes, people are talking about the economic impact of such measures. But again, the pandemic is not yet over. So how do you uh, circle the square for people who are still concerned about uh, unvaccinated, perhaps sick people crossing into the Canadian border?
1: So from the very beginning, we've always said that policy needs to follow public health. We need to ensure that Canadians are kept safe, we need the government to do what it takes to achieve that, and we need the government to be transparent and to explain to Canadians why certain measures are necessary, both at at the time when they're established and when those measures are relaxed. I think near the beginning of the pandemic, they did somewhat better in that transparency, but it really uh, hasn't lived up to expectations recently. We've seen decisions uh, without any uh, clear explanation, and I I think Canadians deserve that. Uh, At the end of the day, people want measures that are based on science, that are based on public health, and as the, the pandemic conditions change, we want a government that's responsive. Now,
0: Mr. Fergus, I'll bring it back to you, because you, uh, you've been hearing the criticism, the concern, and based on reports uh, out there regarding uh, these measures, including the arriveCAN Can app, there have also been Liberal MPs who apparently have been lobbying for an end to such measures, an end to the app, and that's within caucus. So I'm wondering what you've heard within caucus that you might share with us right now.
5: Well, I'm not gonna share what we've discussed in caucus, but I will share with you and with all Canadians is that all throughout the pandemic, we've taken, we've always followed the science. When we've had our advisory groups that have provided information and uh, their conclusions to the Minister of Health, we have taken decisions as a result. That's why Canada had one of the best responses in the world to this pandemic. We had a, relatively, comparatively, a very few deaths, uh, comparatively, we were number one in terms of getting vaccine, uh, vaccinated, and we've been doing really well in our measures in terms of controlling the spread. That's due to Canadians following the science. That's what the government has done, and that's what we'll continue to do. And I look forward uh, to the next decision uh, that the Minister of Health will uh, take from his advisory council and share that with all of us.
0: Okay, now to my understanding, and again, this is based on reports, uh, it seems like a uh... The, the caucus is in agreement that it needs to an end, but what you're now waiting for is the prime minister's approval. So if that is true, when w- will we actually hear the news that this is going to happen or not happen? Well, you'll hear if it's going to happen or not happen before September
5: 30th. And this is what we did at every time that we've come to an expiry date of the Order in Council. Uh, We've always announced in advance what the measures would be going forward for the next period.
0: And so that's what we'll do this time, just as we did in every other period. Okay. Well, we await to find out what actually happens here, but for now, Greg Fergus, Melissa Lanceman, as well as Taylor Backrack, thank you for this. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Mike. So that is some of the policy and politics around the Arrive Can app. But what about the science? Is it safe to end the mandatory use of the app? Is it safe to drop vaccine requirements for international travelers coming to Canada? To talk about this, we are now reaching out to Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases expert and scientist. Isaac, so good to see you. Thanks for being with us today.
4: My pleasure. Great to see you as well Michael.
0: Listen I want to begin with your reaction here because as you heard and really as you know there is pressure to drop this app. Is this a risky move in any way?
4: I really don't think it is. You know I think a lot of these policies especially related to travel certainly many of them had their place and time earlier on in the pandemic but I think it's also fair to acknowledge we're in a much different place right now and I think the sun is setting on several of these policies, including the Arrive Canada app. I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is it that we're trying to do with this? What is the goal? Is this to keep COVID out of Canada? Because we have plenty of COVID in Canada, unfortunately. I just don't think it, uh, uh, the app right now is really achieving what its intended purposes are. And, and that, that's OK. It just means you have to lift that policy and, and move along.
0: Okay, move along, but it's not just the Arrive Can app, it seems, because it seems that the app itself is just one component. As reports have it, though, we're also going to be looking at the end of randomized testing on arrivals. Uh, that's going to go. So what do you make of that?
4: I think the randomized testing, it's just calling it how it is, it doesn't sound like it's been implemented as smoothly as it could have been. People uh, get tested and we've heard many reports of people having to find testing sites that are distant from the airport. It was very cumbersome and, uh, and it just doesn't really achieve the stated goals as well. There are pilot projects that are running uh, in Toronto and looking like they're going to expand elsewhere where they're going to do wastewater surveillance uh, for incoming aircrafts and, and airports. And again, that's a less expensive way to answer the exact same questions. You can really track variants of concern that are emerging and that are entering the country. And uh, that's just a very helpful way to address that issue with, without inconveniencing travellers.
0: Okay. And I'm going to pick up on a point that you said, you know, if it's no longer working, move on. So were these measures really to try and control uh, border entry, were they ever useful? Because really in the early days of the pandemic, as you know, the government was hesitant to bring in any kind of border measure. And as the pandemic evolved, as the public outcry grew louder, it was then the ARRIVE, Can app and other measures that came about. So were they ever useful?
4: It's hard to say. And I think we need to study this and we, we need to actually critically evaluate this. But it's pretty clear that earlier on in the pandemic when we were dealing with the ancestral strain that emerged from wuhan or the alpha variant and even to some extent the delta variant two doses of a vaccine would very significantly reduce one's risk of getting the infection and transmitting the infection to others now a lot of that unfortunately has been lost in the omicron era i'd still say that the vaccine does a remarkable job in protecting people against severe infection but it just doesn't do the same degree as it once did in terms of protecting us against getting the infection and transmitting the infection so these policies could have uh, at least slowed down some of the spread of COVID, not stop it but maybe slow it down a little bit uh because uh, two doses of the vaccine would certainly have prevented incoming travelers from bringing COVID in at that time. It would certainly reduce it significantly. Uh, but but you know the Omicron era really changed so many things. We know it's very transmissible. We know two doses of a vaccine does very little in terms of protecting us against getting the infection and transmitting to others. Uh, and you know when, when the virus changes and the science evolves, it's, it's time to update the policy.
0: Okay, but the pandemic is not over. So when you talk about updating the policy, what is appropriate now? Because as you say, in the age of Omicron, getting it, spreading it, still possible with uh, two doses, but it still, you know, prevents the worst of the disease. But what is appropriate right now, given that the pandemic's not over?
4: It's. I think the appropriate thing to do is really to ensure that vulnerable individuals and at-risk communities get access to the vaccine there are people that are certainly under vaccinated that would greatly benefit from a booster vaccine and we're just not seeing the same degree of uptake in those populations as we should be we know who lands in hospital we know who gets sick we know who succumbs to this illness it is an older population namely people over the age of 60 not exclusively but that group is overrepresented in hospital and sadly overrepresented Uh, in in those who succumb to this illness. We also know people with underlying medical conditions that put them at greater risk for severe infection are overrepresented in hospital. And we have to do targeted outreach. I think that would go a long way in protecting individuals, protecting communities, and also alleviating a lot of pressure from the healthcare system. What do I mean by targeted outreach? I think people can recall back to when first and second doses were going into arms. We had uh, vaccine centres that were in community centers, we had vaccine clinics in houses of worship, we had door-to-door vaccination programs, we had vaccination programs at places of work, we had 24-hour vaccine clinics to accommodate people that work in uh, different schedules. And we really were taking the vaccine and bringing Mm -hmm. it to the people rather than bringing people to the vaccine. I think approaches like that, especially for vulnerable communities and individuals would go a long way.
0: So, And yes or no on this very quickly. So what you say is focus on building up defenses at home rather than worry about who's actually coming into the country.
4: I think that's appropriate at this point in time.
0: Isaac, always good to speak with you. Thank you for this.
4: My pleasure. Have a great day.
0: You too. What is the best way to help Canadians who are struggling with the high cost of living? The issue was debated once again in the House today. Take a listen to just a bit of what was said.
2: Right at a time when it is we are facing 40-year highs in inflation, all-time highs in increased housing prices 40-year highs in food price inflation record food bank use this is the last time to that anyone should be raising any tax will the government back down from its planned tax hikes on paychecks and on energy
3: yes things are hard right now but Canada is better positioned than any country in the world we have the strongest economic growth and the lowest deficit in the g7. Employment is at historic highs. Inflation is lower in Canada than the US, the UK, and the Eurozone, and it has now come down for two months in a row. We'll get through these tough times together.
1: The cost of groceries are up by average 10%. Bread is up 15.4%. Fresh fruits is up by 13.2%. You know what else is up? Corporate profits.
0: As the Trudeau government moves forward with its affordability package in Parliament, at Queen's Park in Toronto, a group of provincial politicians are trying to raise awareness about how little support people on social assistance actually get. Joel Hardin is the member of Ontario's Provincial Parliament for the Riding of Ottawa Centre. He is a part of this effort and joins us right now. Mr. Hardin, nice to see you. Thank you for joining us.
2: Pleasure to be here, Michael.
0: So a bit of background here for people at home. You and a group of other Ontario MPPs are trying to uh, essentially double the payments individuals who are on Ontario Disability and Ontario Works get. And to do that, you've been living on this social assistance diet. What does that mean? How do you define a social assistance diet?
2: Well, the definition we took, Michael, was from what the Harris government, a previous conservative government, uh, said in 1995 someone could live on. So when we asked researchers to think about inflation, um, of what that 1995 cost to diet that conservative government of the day thought people could survive on, what it amounts to today is $47.60 for an individual person per week, so that's what my colleagues and I decided to try to survive on for two weeks.
0: Okay, so that is the dollar figure. In terms of practicalities, what did it mean? What was it like to actually live on this kind of budget, on this kind of diet?
2: wasn't easy. Uh, I worked on the same bag of lentils uh, and bag of dried chickpeas, dried lentils. Uh, it was cheap bread and peanut butter spread thinly for breakfast. Uh, It was a lot of the same food all day long. And moreover, because you're always thinking about your next meal, you have to prep stuff ahead of time. A lot of your day is preoccupied thinking about, you know, how you can stretch whatever you have. Uh, And I think that's life. For folks on social assistance I've spoken to, Michael, that's what everyday life is like, that constant hunger, constant suffering, and it doesn't have to be like that.
0: So your hope is that, again, the Ontario uh, government, the the PC government under Doug Ford, will actually double the payments. Would that then be a livable amount?
2: Well, it was a livable amount for 9 million Canadians who accessed the CERB in the pandemic, who because of the pandemic could not work. That's what life is like for people with disabilities, Michael. They have to prove to a doctor to qualify for disability benefits in Ontario that they cannot have access to full-time paid work. But then we consign them to poverty. $1,169 a month. That soon will be $1,200 a month. No one can live in this city in Ottawa on that. Or for Ontario Works, $733 a month. So it's a lot more expensive for us to make people live in poverty and to actually give people a livable income. And if they can work or volunteer on top of that, fantastic. But poverty costs us in Ontario $33
3: billion a year.
2: Doubling the benefit in Ontario for social assistance, $8 billion. It's a third of the cost.
0: So, what then do you make of the measures that are now coming out of Ottawa? Uh, Essentially, the Trudeau government proposing here a monthly doubling of the GST rebate for six months for those who qualify, a rental supplement, a, a move on dental care. I know it's not your backyard being in provincial politics, but as you talk about the suffering people undergo and the kind of daily struggle those with little money actually have to go through, what does that say to you about the current proposals? How would you assess it?
2: It's minuscule. We are talking about gimmicks and baubles at the federal level. I'll do respect to the prime minister. And uh, I'll do respect to the premier at the provincial level. And frankly, I'm tired of it because we are funding affluent people who would go to hockey games. We subsidize successful executives sitting in box seats to deduct 50% of the cost of those hockey tickets or entertainment expenses. They're legitimate expenses you can write off in your taxes. And we waste billions of dollars in similar write-offs for the already affluent. But poverty continues in our community, and for some reason, we refuse to invest in making sure everybody can have a decent meal, a roof over their head, and it costs us in police costs, it costs us in healthcare costs, and in prison costs, ultimately, when people have a really, really tough time. So our view is, let's change our priorities, let's go across party lines, and say it's time for us to invest in making sure every kid, every person, gets a decent start, and we will be a fairer,
0: more compassionate society. Joel Harden, thanks for being with us.
2: It's a pleasure, Michael. Be well. Take care, everybody.
0: You too. Well, let's continue our look at the Liberal affordability package. Joining us right now is anti-poverty activist Lee Bercy. He is a former city councillor from Brockville, Ontario. He joins us right now from Mount Pearl, Newfoundland. Lee, thank you for being with us. Thank you for joining us.
6: Thank you so much for inviting me. It's quite an honor.
0: Listen, uh, we're going to get to your assessment of the Liberal affordability package, but if you don't mind, I, I do want to ask you to share your own personal story, because in addition to working on poverty issues based on your own personal experience, you know firsthand how it is to struggle with housing and income insecurity.
6: Absolutely. So right now I'm a 35-year-old newlywed homeowner in Mount Pearl, and I'm very grateful to be in that recognizing how many people that is a very elusive dream for. Uh, But that wasn't always the case. There was a time when my mother and I, based on some unfortunate domestic situations in my youth, ended up homeless in a tent. Uh, Then, of course, I was a municipal counselor. And even during those periods, uh, we were definitely generationally and secretly poor. Uh, And understanding that, that meant that uh, we we depended on family as much as we could, uh, wherever that was possible, and the kindness of great mentors and strangers. Uh, and eventually turn that into an opportunity where I could better serve the community myself by doing something meaningful. And now I'm on the board for the Canadian Housing Renewal Association and the Canadian Alliance to of Remote Homelessness, National Alliance, rather, and a variety of other organizations of that nature, Chartered mm-hmm. Housing professional.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, And now
6: I'm doing straight outreach.
0: And as you say, working on something that is very meaningful to you. And as we talk about the income insecurity that Canadians are feeling right now, we know that based on polling, the vast majority of Canadians say that they are struggling with the current cost of living. So what has inflation done to those who have less means? What have you seen uh, firsthand? What have you heard?
6: Well, it's interesting because a lot of people have their own preconceived notions as to why people end up poor and what some of those challenges might look like. And the fact is, is that while there's no death, there's a segment of the population who may be struggling with a variety of mental health challenges or, or uh, maybe addiction issues, or maybe there may have been some uh, in, in involvement in other means that led to that destination. The fact is, is that you have a lot of people who are very much struggling and are working full time. Uh, in a uh, service-based economy where the cost of living continues to increase, but the the wages continue to stagnate. And even with some of the increases we've seen on minimum wages across the province and across the country, rather, uh, that doesn't necessarily uh, antiquate a better quality of life for people who are now feeling that pitch in other places. And we've seen that in the post-COVID-19 recovery, probably on a more astronomical, straightforward level than we had previously, where things used to etch up and sort of crawl towards something more uh, unaffordable. Right now, we are absolutely seeing the pinch of
0: inflation. Mm-hmm. So when the federal government proposes uh, GST rebates, doubling them for six months, uh, dental care, rental support, what do you make of that kind of proposal?
6: I think that this is wonderful, and no doubt i would be the first one to champion any opportunity that we have to put money back in people's pockets, especially those who are vulnerable or struggling. Uh, we have a lot of people who are not getting their... Gas subsidized from where they work, who are feeling the pinch at at the tanks, in spite of the fact that that's a progressive policy and probably with a well-intentioned result. We, we know that uh, you know public, even public transportation is costing more than it did at one point. So any opportunity to assist people, especially when we're talking about either first those who are struggling against rising rents in the you know private sector. In uh, a variety of different circumstances that may make life more affordable than it did before, and that's great. But I would caution that each and every one of have seen, has some temporary mandate attached to it. This is not a carte blanche check that's going to be there ongoing for any period of time other than a short-term stimulus to help people get over the hump. And if it does, no doubt more money in people's pockets when they're struggling as it is, especially heading into the notorious Canadian winters that we're used to. It's probably a very positive thing with definitely a well-intentioned outcome. Mm -hmm. The challenge, of course, is is what does that turn into?
0: Yeah, I, I'm quickly running out of time, but I do want to ask you, because as you say, well-intentioned outcome perhaps, but there is some concern uh, about these programs, that bringing them in may actually just raise inflation even further rather than bring it down. What do you say to that?
6: I think that there's always that possibility, although mathematically we know that when you raise the minimum wage, as an example, that means more people spending money in their economy. Microeconomics is still economics. Uh, The idea here is if we're willing to subsidize small businesses who were hit during COVID with, uh, you know, debt recovery. How come we're not doing the same for those who are struggling, uh, such as uh, residential renters, uh, who, who of course are the reason if we're able to keep people housed, we're also able to keep those units deeply affordable and avoid unnecessary increases. The fact is, is that any initiative that's put in place that helps people maintain a quality of life, especially on certain times, is a positive one. And we definitely did trumpet it. But the challenge is, is that there are unknown variables and greed is a reality in economics.
0: Lee Bursi, really good to speak with you today. Thank you for the time.
6: Thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: And that is all for this edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC. I'm Michael Serapio. Thanks for watching.